Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings. We explore the contours of engaged scholarship, question the notion of publics, and whose voice is heard, while asking where's the social in social media. This is Public Scholarship and Engaged Research. I can see your eyes, man. It's the mouth that, that always gets me, um, uh, I'm like dizzy, basically. <laughs> I can't don't, look at yeah, you. Yeah, don't, don't look at my mouth. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, yeah, so how have you been, uh, it's been a week. It's it been, a been a week, yeah. Yeah, well, we had, um, it's been almost like two weeks, basically, because we were just like yeah. chatting over text and misfiring yeah. our podcasts and things like this, so. Oh, man, yeah. Um, no, it's, uh, it's been good. Melly and Violet are out of town, so. They left on Thursday and they're coming back uh, late night on Tuesday. I saw the picture of the baby on an airplane. Very cute. Oh, really? On an yeah. airplane? Eh? On an airplane. Oh, yeah. I got to start following my wife's Facebook feed. I guess. Well, I guess technically it was in a in a baby chair in a seat in an in an airplane. Oh, like that's... wasn't riding the wing or anything. Oh wow. Okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> Inside the actual. Uh, the... Yeah, it, it was in in the plane. Yeah. The okay, that's good. No, um, no. Okay. Whew. Um, no, it's it's really cool. I uh, I've been getting a lot of sleep. I've just been chilling. Um, uh, but I had a Facebook Messenger chat with her this morning, yeah, yeah. and I don't like the the video calling. It kind of gives me like headaches, it makes me dizzy and whatnot. But um, Violet was crying, and I I sang her my "I'll Spare You," but uh, the Daddy Diaper song. Oh, Daddy Diaper song, yeah. yeah. Daddy Diaper time, Diaper time with Daddy, and it goes on from that. And then I wow, just started. Was that one trademarked? Um, well, nope. Okay. Anyone who would like to take that and steal it and make a lot of money and make a lot of kids happy, go right ahead. But Daddy it was really, time. it was kind of crazy because it was like a 21st century sort of parenting moment where I was like, through video calling, I was able to like, you know, soothe and comfort Violet. Yeah. And it was kind of wild. When I hung up the phone with Mel, I'm like, okay, I got to let you go. And I was like, wow, that was actually kind of crazy Yeah, <laughs> what I just did there. I uh, So the first time that a niece or, um, no, I think it was a niece, could have been a nephew, but I'm pretty sure it was a niece. FaceTime me, it was the weirdest experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Seeing their young little face and knowing how to use that device, uh, it just blew my mind away. Yeah. And but they use them so well, right? They do, yeah. Like, uh, Violet's going to be using, uh, you know, your phone or, my, or your wife's phone, like, in no time. Yeah, that scares me, man. Yeah. I, it terrifies yeah. me, especially phones. For some reason, that um, technology and, and children, it might be, like, a topic a year down the road that we do on it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's always something that terrifies yeah. me. So. Yeah. How has the last couple of weeks been with you? I know you've been out of town. You just got back in. So. Just got back in. Uh, went for so we're recording this on uh, Saturday, August nineteenth. Mm. Uh, but we, uh, my wife and I, Mel, attended uh, the uh, Signal Farewell tour, uh, the Montreal show, uh, mm. hosted by Laurie Brown and the CBC. Uh, it was amazing. It was great. Um, we, so we've been listening to the Signal radio show for a long time. And, uh, you know, I'd say kind of brought us together in certain ways and lots of good, uh, experiences. Mel, uh, so we got to meet and greet with Lori after. So we That's got so some cool. signed posters mm-hmm. and, uh, I got a nice selfie with her. She's, you know, she's a, she, she's a cool one, a yeah. cool, a cool cat. Yeah. And, uh, but had a great time in Montreal. Uh, it was a short trip, but I also got to see a good friend of mine, Mike Ferris. Oh, cool. And his wife, Martine Ferris had a lovely dinner with them. I uh, got caught up. So that was also 
uh, nice. That's awesome. Are they um, like friends from like a friend from back in high school or something? No, or? he was a, an old employer uh, oh, cool. who's turned into you know a very close friend. Um, just really great, down to earth people. It's the you know sort of people who. You go over, uh, you open a bottle of wine, and you can just chat for hours. Oh, that's awesome. Those are great friends to have, man. Yep. Oh, yep. It sounds like you had a good trip. I saw some of the pictures you threw up on our social media accounts. A, a grilled cheese sandwich, I believe, was involved that's right. there. Yeah, that's a, a signal light thing. Yeah. That's a signal light thing. Yeah, we oh, listen. is it? It is, yeah. We li- we listen to the signal and eat grilled cheese, the whole signal light community. Oh, well, so maybe not everyone. But uh, yeah, Lori has given us uh, many, many uh, amazing grilled cheese recipes over the years. Huh. That we've replicated or tried to. Wow. I thought it was just Phil enjoying a nice grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> no, there is an insider there. Oh, so that's cool. There you go. Well, uh, congratulations to her. And uh, it looked like you guys had a great time. Yeah, uh, we did. We uh, it, was, it was amazing. I'd do it again tomorrow if I could. Um, but uh, for everyone who's new to the show uh, and returning listeners, welcome. Uh, we are Semi-Intellectual Musings. My name is Philip Primo. And Matt Sanderson. Uh, So Semi-Intellectual Musings is a podcast that looks at social sciences, humanities, and arts. We do it through book reviews. We do it through sometimes interviews. We do it through giving you your honest, our honest opinion, and connecting the published world to the everyday life. Um, I like to think of it, Matt, kind of as musings that you would have with a friend, maybe uh, at a campus pub. Yeah, for sure. That's the original conception I had for this show. It's like... uh... When you go to a pub for a couple of beers and you bring your notepads and then the notepads just get thrown off on the spare chair and then you just get into it. And if you've been with us from the beginning or if you're new, uh, this is our 25th episode. Oh, no way. Really? It is. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, so we're halfway to the 50 mark. Huh. Uh, it, it seems like yesterday we were recording episode number one in this very room, Matt. Yeah, it was uh, it was rough. I think that took us like seven hours. Or I something. think it did. Yeah, <laughs> the final product probably sounded horrible. Yeah, but, but I'm so proud of it. I'm I'm proud of the fact that we got that first one out. And once you get the first one out, anyone who's interested in starting a podcast, then it just becomes fun. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's what we're doing. We're having fun. I'm having a blast, man. <laughs> uh, do you have any messages for us, man? Yeah, we do. Um, so I have a really good friend of mine who is from Afghanistan and is back home traveling in Afghanistan and seeing friends and family. Um. I uh, really appreciate him. He's got a deep faith in Islam, and he also has a deep faith in his own country of Afghanistan and its ability to hopefully in the future turn some corners and uh, make some improvements. So I just wanted to give a special shout out to him. Travel safe, brother. I'm looking forward to seeing you when we get back in BC and seeing the rocks you're bringing from the Hindu Kush uh, mountain range. Awesome. Uh, I have a belated birthday message to uh, one of our first listeners, uh, Cheryl. I have to say, happy birthday, belated birthday, Cheryl. Happy birthday, Cheryl. Uh, We were supposed to do it last week, but the recording kind of got messed up, (laughs) so we had to put out a bonus episode out of timeline. Anyway, all that is behind (laughs) us now, so happy birthday. Now, we also got, uh, maybe last week, maybe the week before, uh, an email from our podcasting friends, uh, Skip and Josh. Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool that uh, we've made podcasting buddies. Um, I really love the shout outs that they give us on their podcast and um, and just sort of the support that they give us in general. So, um, yeah, thanks, uh, Skip and Josh, for all the love that you give us. And uh, also thanks for your baseball top fives. Yeah. So Skip sent us uh, his and Josh's baseball movie top five. And that's in reference to a top five episode that we did where we offered our top five uh, baseball movies. So let me, let's go through this. So uh, I'm going to start with, start with Josh's. Okay. So uh, Josh's um, 
notable notables. Uh, a League of Their Own, hmm. uh, 42, 61, Major League, The Fan, Trouble with the Curve. Uh, his number five, hmm. Fever Pitch. What? Yeah, Fever Pitch. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> the romantic comedy. It, it is, yeah. It's on the list. Okay. Number four. I, I, might, I might have to actually check that out because yeah, I usually just write it off. Like, oh, whatever. <laughs> number four, The Rookie. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Number three, Moneyball, which I yeah, you had ranked that. at number three, uh, I believe, as well. Okay. Uh, number two, For the Love of the Game. Okay. For Love of the Game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can you guess his number one? Uh, n- no, but I, I already know what it is, so I'm not going to guess. Oh, okay. You saw the email? <laughs> I can, yeah, I can totally guess. Like 100% uh, accuracy. Uh, <laughs> I forget that, all the other ones. That's a good baseball stat. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Bull Durham. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so skips. Uh, notables are uh, Eighth Man Out. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. 61. Yeah. Uh, Fever Pitch. A League of Their Own. Trouble with the Curve. Now, he also gave us a full disclosure. And okay. I don't know if he wanted us to read this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Do it. <laughs> uh, he says, and I'm quoting, um, I'm in love with Amy Adams. Oh, okay. So Trouble with the Curve wouldn't even be close to this list if it wasn't for her. You know what? <laughs> Everyone, uh, you know, uh, has uh, this love. Uh, uh, you know, it's Amy Adams. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can see that. So what's you the know, rest? We all of crush hard. Anyway, uh, Rookie of the Year, number five. <laughs> okay, yeah. The Natural, number four. The Sandlot, that, yeah. number three. Yeah. Uh, Field of Dreams, number two. And coming in at number one, Bull Durham. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, they both, I, they both gave that movie the number one slot. Yeah, and on a future episode, I got to revise my top five. When we were recording it, I was like, I forgot to order it beforehand, and then I like had a notable omission. So stay tuned for Matt's revised top five. Oh boy, how many revisions are we gonna have to go through? Uh, just go ask uh, Mel, uh, who edited my uh, master's thesis, how many times I revised things. Like eighty. Yeah, 80, 80, yeah. yeah, for 70, sure. It's gonna turn 80. into a top twenty. Uh, okay, so I want to say thank you to everyone who has used our promo code SIMPOD and signed up for Podchaser. Uh, it's free. It's fun. Uh, it's how you can help us sign up at podchaser.com for your free account. Give us some ratings, some reviews, find new podcasts, find the podcasts you love and, uh, let us know what you think. Uh, so thank you to everyone who has done that. Is there a beta code for that? Uh, beta code SIMPOD, S-I-M-P-O-D. Uh, now I also have a, a Facebook thank you. And this one goes out to Melissa Baxter, uh, from the podcast we listen to group for drawing attention to everyone in the group, but also to myself, to the review option on Facebook pages. So I didn't know that a Facebook page had a button that you could activate, and it allows visitors to give you a review on your Facebook page. No way, really? It does. Wow, that's super handy. So um, so podcasters out there, turn this option on your page. Cool. Yeah, for sure. I'll get Phil to do that. <laughs> it's on. We turn it oh, on. Oh, it is it? It's wow, on. look it's at on. the magic uh, of podcasting. Now, podcast listeners and fans... Please use this on our Facebook page. So it's easy. Five stars means you love us. And then use your keyboard and your fingertips uh, to clamor on some letters and some punctuation marks (laughs) into a sentence that expresses that love. Uh, And that's at www.facebook.com slash the simpod. We have a great episode coming up for you. Uh, Public scholarship, engaged research. Uh, Stay tuned. 
But before we go, I'm going to tell you how you can get into contact with us with our social media network. Is that? It's weird to see. <laughs> Do it, man. It's weird. Okay. Read so the script. We are on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. Our email is semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website, which includes the archives to the show, is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your podcatcher of choice. Give us some readings. Give us some reviews. Uh, visit our Facebook page at the SimPod. Uh, let us know what you think. Give us your honest opinion because that's what we try to give you cool we'll be back let's start love you with all of my mind i'm the soul challenger i'm the real damage now behold and hold in the straight magical because the sky is flies in a strong road weary the heroes built out in a blast and a spirit pray on the power and pray to your father because all of the quakes in the universe resonate to your heartbeat and your faith Speaking from a podium to a gathering of mostly academic researchers and professors, Michael Burroughs' presidential address to the American Sociological Association began as most have in the past. He thanked the organizing committee, spoke of food and drink, gave thanks, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, to a grant from the Ford Foundation, welcomed international scholars, and gave respect to those close to the group who had deceased. It was the typical house-cleaning that presidential addresses do, but the podium and the brief spotlight is for during conferences. These things do not get much ink. They are mundane. But setting the stage of that 2004 evening is important, because what Burroway talked about next, the meat of his talk, his next 30 minutes in front of a captive audience and video camera, has drawn attention, scorn, bewilderment, fascination, and something akin to a following. It was, in Burroway's words, the revealing of the acts that sociologists needed to sharpen, the acts of public sociology. Burroway's words pierced the audience as his call for more, not less, public engagement rang out. His plea was to bring sociology back to the people from where it came from. This is the project of public sociology, Burroway tells us. Something that Pierre Bourdieu said was delicate, difficult, and dangerous. Nonetheless, Burroway proceeded to offer us his 11 theses on the state of public sociology. We could actually call what he gave us a diagnostic of the field of engaged scholarship. The focus on the public, however, was neither new nor novel. Burway acknowledged this. The public in sociology, like many other social sciences, has always been there. The question, and for some the problem, was where that public was. Even the notion of a public, its singular term, was questioned. Ought we speak of multiple publics? Who is included or excluded in these publics? What could happen if the wrong public began to draw attention? As we will see, Burroway's presidential address is not the beginning of the story of engaged scholarship. It is, however, an important moment for Western social sciences' dance with it. I want to quote somewhat at length from Burroway's address now to properly capture the flavor of the way that public sociology was meant to represent. Paying homage to Walter Benjamin's treatise on the philosophy of history, Burroway says at the dawn of the 21st century, unfettered capitalism fuels market tyrannies and untold inequalities on a global scale while resurgent democracy too often becomes a thin veil for powerful interests, disenfranchisement, mendacity, and even violence. Once again, the angel of history is swept up in a storm, a terrorist storm blowing from paradise. In its beginning, sociology aspired to be such an angel of history, searching for order in the broken fragments of modernity, seeking to salvage the promise of progress. Thus, Karl Marx recovered socialism from alienation. Emil Durkheim redeemed organic solidarity from anomie and egoism. Max Weber, despite premonitions of a polar night of icy darkness, 
could discover freedom in rationalization and extract meaning from disenchantment. On this side of the Atlantic, W.E.B. Dubois pioneered pan-Africanism in reaction to racism and imperialism, while Jane Addams tried to snatch peace and internationalism from the jaws of war. But the storm of progress was caught in sociology's wings. If for a predecessor set out to change the world, we have too often ended up conserving it. Fighting for a place in the academic sun, sociology developed its own specialized knowledge, whether in the form of the brilliant and lucid erudition of Robert Merton, the arcane and grand design of Talcott Parsons, or the early statistical treatments of mobility and stratification, culminating in the work of Peter Blau and Otis Dudley Duncan. Reviewing the 1950s, Seymour Martin Lipset and Neil Smeltzer could triumphantly declare sociology's moral prehistory finally over and the path to science fully open. Not for the first time, Comtean visions had gripped sociology's professional elite. As before, this burst of pure science was short-lived. A few years later, campuses, especially those where sociology was strong, were ignited by political protests for free speech, civil rights, and peace indicting consensus sociology and its uncritical embrace of science. The dialectic of progress governs our individual careers as well as our collective discipline. The original passion for social justice, economic equality, human rights, sustainable environment, political freedom, or simply a better world that drew so many of us to sociology is channeled into the pursuit of academic credentials. Progress becomes a battery of disciplinary techniques, standardized courses, validated reading lists, bureaucratic rankings, intensive examinations, literature reviews, tailored dissertations, refereed publications, the almighty CV, the job search, the tenure file, and then policing of one's colleagues and successors to make sure we all march in step. Still, despite the normalizing pressures of careers, the originating moral impetus is rarely vanquished. The sociological spirit cannot be extinguished so easily. Constrictions notwithstanding, discipline, in both the individual and collective senses of the word, has borne its fruits. We have spent a century building professional knowledge, translating common sense into science, so that now we are more than ready to embark on a systemic back translation, taking knowledge back to those from where it came, making public issues out of private troubles, and thus regenerating sociology's moral fiber. Herein lies the promise and challenge of public sociology, the complement and not the negation of professional sociology. Today, we explore what engaged scholarship means, its possible flights through history, and how it is practiced today. We will not be able to cover its entire sphere. That would be too daunting and probably futile, as those practices which make scholarship engaged are constantly changing, much like the fluctuating worlds it seeks to understand. As such, we offer our reading of engaged scholarship as well as our modest critiques of it by assessing some of Biroway's 11 main points in light of recent events that have shook the social, cultural, and political groundings that we stand on, offering our own diagnostic of where the state of public scholarship stands today seems to us to be vitally important. Matt, following from good teaching practices, and before getting too far ahead of ourselves, let's start with some basic definitions. What do we mean by public sociology or public anthropology or engaged scholarship on a very basic level? All right, great, Phil. Thanks. That uh, really set the stage well. Um, I have a quote from Robert Borofsky. He's from Hawaii Pacific University, and he defines public anthropology as following. It demonstrates the ability of anthropology and anthropologists to effectively address problems beyond the discipline 
illuminating larger social issues of our time, as well as encouraging broad public conversations about them. So it's kind of anything that is outside of the discipline beyond out into the so-called public sphere. Yeah, and I think there's a few things that stand in common with Burroughs' vision here. Um, so the first is that the, you know, it kind of showcases the potential of the discipline to have impact. And that's kind of in line with you know, recent or at least since the mid-90s, uh, neoliberal pressures on university administrations, professors, and researchers to really account for their work and show some sort of progress or results. So that's kind of, you know, where the context, where the, the, the kind of push is coming from in both of, both of those, right? Now, related to this is also the casting of the disciplinary gaze outside of the discipline. So almost as a fait accompli, the disciplinary boundaries that exist no longer offer a viable avenue to work through change or progressive politics, and that the disciplinary boundaries need to be breached in order to escape the neoliberalization of the work that researchers do. Uh, so again, you can see how those first two things fit together, right? And the third one, I think this is probably the most important point here, is that the work needs to be done extra disciplinarily. So the work done outside of the discipline. So it's focused on the public or publics, uh, which I think we're, we're going to get into. And it's thought of as a vehicle to ignite uh, debate or at least some sort of discussion. But it needs to be done outside of the walls of the university. I think that's kind of like the most important point when we talk about public or engaged uh, scholarship. Yeah. So in terms of public anthropology, more specifically public interest anthropology, is something that I found when I was doing research for this episode. Um, public interest anthropology is an approach that merges problem solving with theory and analysis, and it's all in the interest of making change. So something in anthropology that I think is interesting to explore in this episode is how these engaged and public approaches are all insta into like practice and change yeah, and action. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then typically public interest anthropology and any kind of a public approach or engaged approach in anthropology um, highlights the the following sort of topics, I guess you'd say. Um, there's a commitment to social justice, racial harmony, equality, human rights, and well-being. So these are, some of our listeners might say, wow, those sound like Western ideas and yeah. morality. And that's something that I also want to pick up as uh, the conversation progresses. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, uh, you know, it kind of seems to me that it's precisely that notion of public sphere uh, or public sphere debate um, that I think we could uh, critique on. You know, it's found in the in the public interest anthropology. It's found in the public sociology. And you know, if you think about the worlds or the spheres that the researchers are concerned with, um, really, you know, you start talking about two different things. So you kind of have what the, the the world or the sphere that the researchers are on are in, and then uh, the world that they analyze. And Burroway captures this in his first thesis, uh, which he calls the Scissors Movement. So he says. Uh, the aspiration for public sociology is stronger and its realization ever more difficult as sociology has moved left and the world has moved right. So I think, you know, Burroway's assessment is that while researchers continue to turn their gaze towards social activism and progressive politics, the other uh, metamor uh, you know, metaphorical arm of the scissors uh, is the world uh, which researchers engage with. And that world has really made a turn towards the opposite direction, turning towards the right. Um, so I think that that assessment mostly still holds true. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, social sociology and other social science disciplines do move to the left in response to society-wise um, moves to the right. And when we talk about society, 
while people do hold um, political philosophies like neoliberalism and neoconservatism, um, we're also talking about society itself, like the nuts and bolts, like the actual political actors and the economies that are moving to the right as well. So we're talking like free trade agreements and stuff like this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what comes to mind immediately is the um, ex-Canadian Prime Minister uh, Stephen Harper. Our favorite. Um, being able to say things like it's not time to commit sociology when talking about international terrorism. Um, so the reaction to this, at least in Canada, has been a renewed uh, kind of engagement program by leftists or progressive-leaning researchers. Um, but also, and I think more importantly to the, this notion of institutions, is the slogan, commit sociology. So this sort of engagement is clearly reactionary on the part of those that hold the slogan, commit sociology. And it's clearly in opposition to the narrative that devalues social sciences and evidence-based policies. So this is what Burroway is actually talking about, I think, which is that the scissors arms are coming down on each other, right? Oh, okay. Um, so like, That's interesting. you know, you can picture a scissor uh, open and you kind of have the right and the left arm, but it's when they, they, they kind of meet when they clash at the center, right? Oh, that's so interesting, man, because I was thinking pulling scissors apart in the opposite direction as we become more polarized in our two wings of political ideology, we become pulled apart. So that's an interesting different reading there. Yeah, well, I think like, um, I think the metaphor accomplishes both, yeah, is to sure. say that there's a separation of them, but uh, they're mobile, right? They, they can come together at certain, cl- at certain points. And I think what we're also witnessing uh, at this point, this juncture when they clash down on each other, is the emergence or at least the public attention of professors that do not want to engage in this sort of tug of war. So you see the case of uh, University of Toronto psychologist, uh, Professor Jordan Peterson, um, who maybe is pertinent to talk about a little bit. Um, But Peterson basically comes out uh, not wanting to use gender neutral pronouns and gets a lot of slack for it, gets in trouble. And then his kind of response is to say, well, this is like uh, free speech. Right, right. Right. So now he's become this free speech advocate. Yeah. And in Canada, um, for like foreign listeners, I suppose, um, we don't have necessarily an absolutist stance on free speech. Um, we have a, I would describe it actually as a relativist stance. Um, we have um, hate speech and um, restrictions on our free speech. So um, we have to remember that this is a, a Canadian citizen in a Canadian university. Um, making these claims about uh, free speech. Uh, yeah, and like, um, you know, there is this legislation called C-16. Right. Um, so, you know, C-16 is something relatively new, and for people who are outside of Canada, um, C-16 is really something that tries to extend uh, both the Charter of Human Rights, uh, protected uh Mm-hmm. Uh, groups, yeah. uh, but also the criminal code. Yeah. Um, so you see people like Peterson um, coming out against it. Right, right. And it's um, it's uh, kind of like a wider, I guess, um, I guess you could say like it's an academic argument, but it gets played out in the political sphere. And it really, in our context, in the Canadian context, it really impacts uh, people's lives because um, there are people who um, have every right to demand to be uh, referred to the way that they want to, and this is really a question of identity politics. And when you're in, um, you know, a conference room or something like this in an academic setting, uh, we can kind of talk about these things in a little bit, be like the devil's advocate or contrarian, so to speak. But um, when it's actually a proposed piece of federal legislation, um, it takes on a different, bit of a different tenor. So Phil um, takes us to these questions. So as an academic, what is the impact of something like Bill C-16 
16 on uh, your work. Patterson has come out saying that it infringes on spe- free speech. How do you think free speech gets balanced or treated in classroom or at conferences? Right. Um, okay. So first of all, Patterson isn't actually making a free speech argument about the provisions found in Bill C-16. He's making an identity politics argument about extending the reach of protections against hate speech and discrimination. So the bill, um, so for our American uh, or international counterparts, this is basically a law in the criminal code uh, as well as a charter, which is kind of like the constitution. Right. Um, um, so the bill adds gender expression and identity as protected grounds to the Canadian Human Rights Act and also to the criminal code provisions dealing specifically with hate propaganda, incitement to genocide, and and it also in uh, cases um, that could aggravate uh, sentencing decisions. Right. So basically all the uh, the bill has added is the words gender identity or expression to these words that were already in it. Identifiable groups means any section of the public distinguished by color, race, religion, national or ethnic origin, age, sex, sexual orientation, or mental or physical disability. So all they added was gender identity or expression to something that already had in the list age, sex, sexual orientation, color, religion, these sorts of things. And really all it did was to modernize the language that we use and to be inclusive of trans uh, people. It honestly, when you're listing all the different groups there, um, it's a glaring omission. You're just like, oh, wait, like we were missing. It was written in a time where we didn't use this sort of language. Yeah. And the bill modernized the language yeah. of it. And that's so, the great thing about this bill. It's like rather than having to have a full-on amendment to it, like they can just like adjust languages. So when Peterson comes out and says, no, you know, C-16 uh, is going to stifle free speech and all this stuff, what he's really saying is uh, we can't commit a genocide on the grounds of gender identity. That sucks. And mm-hmm. I think that that has nothing to do with free speech. I think that has to do with uh, some far-right kind of narrative uh, that uses free speech to support some sort of idea that people can't choose their their sexual orientation or choose how they represent their gender or how they express their gender. Like there's free speech, there's free expression. And I, I would argue that if you are not allowing people who uh, like gender identity, um, that would be a restriction to expression. So like it's kind of right there, there's a huge contradiction in his stupid little argument. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> moving along. Uh, well, well, you know this <laughs> gets else, well. Yeah. This gets us into actually Burroway's uh, second thesis oh, about cool. the multiplicity of public sociologies. So um, in his second thesis, he says that there are multiple public sociologies reflecting different types of publics and multiple ways of accessing them. So traditional and organic public sociologies are two polar but complementary types, and publics can be destroyed, but they can also be created. Some never disappear. Our students are our first and captive public. Um, so I want to take a second to briefly discuss the idea of publics that is fueling Burroway's second thesis here. And I want to add to it the notion of counterpublics, which is kind of uh, coming back to our discussion of gender identity and expression, Bill C-16. And the, the idea of counterpublics comes from Nancy Fraser and then was extended by Michael Warner. And it's used as a way to rethink the Habermasian rational deliberative public sphere. So I wanted to actually dig into this um, juxtaposition he makes between traditional and organic sociologies. Yeah. Um, so I have a, a couple of quotes here. I'll just sort of read them out and then maybe we can chat about it a bit. Um, so in terms of uh, to the traditional public sociology, with traditional public sociology, the publics being addressed are generally invisible in that they cannot be seen. 
thin in that they do not generate much internal interaction, passive in that they do not constitute a movement or organization, and they are usually mainstream. Between the, and this is a quote carrying on, between the organic public sociologists and a public is a dialogue, a process of mutual education. The recognition of public sociology must extend to the organic kind, which often remains invisible, private, and is often considered to be apart from our professional lives. The project of such public sociology is to make visible the invisible, to make the private public, to validate these organic connections as part of our sociological life. And I like that last quote there in the last line because we constantly talk about this making the invisible visible and visible invisible. Yeah. So I I just thought maybe we can jump in and talk about that. Yeah, well, I think it captures precisely what Nancy Fraser and Michael Burroway talk about when they use the notion of counterpublics. And counterpublics are those sorts of groups, marginalized groups, fringe groups that don't actually get seen or heard. They're there, they exist, they're somewhere, but they're not found in current discourse and current narrative. So, you know, what Burroway is actually saying is that social sciences as a disciplinary focus needs to pay attention to those voices, right? To make the unheard heard, to give voice to the voiceless, this sorts of thing. So one way these um, engagements with these uh, invisible groups can be done is actually what uh, Burroway calls service learning. Um, And I got a little quote here for you. Um, Service learning is the prototype. As they learn, students become ambassadors of sociology to the wider world, just as they bring back to the classroom their engagement with diverse publics. As teachers, we are all potentially public sociologists. So I think yeah. just in our very nature, being in the classroom, we are being public, but we're also, for me, I would always try to turn my classroom into a political space, whether right, right. I'm engaging with my students' own personal experiences or trying to challenge the, uh, the biases, let's say, that they might have brought into the classroom. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about the intersection of research and teaching. And, um, you know, throughout the Burroway's kind of address, his presidential address, and his work that he's done outside of that on the same themes of public sociology, it seems to me like he's always kind of focused on the research aspect of it. Uh, so the targets of our research, the outputs of it, the inputs, the that sort of thing. Uh, but here what he really gets down to kind of the practitioner level and says, well, there's actually a way that we can do this in our classrooms and it's through teaching methods. Yeah. And I thought that, you know, that was kind of Burroway's or his kind of way to say, hey, you know, there are people who work at the university who aren't researchers, lecturers, for example, who don't do research but could have impact. So that's another way of engaged scholarship that I think is more important today than it was when Burroway talked about this in 2004, as we see more and more the appearance of these teaching-only positions at our universities. Yeah, for sure. I, I love that you mentioned the date there again because I was just trying to dig it up. And uh, that's a really valid point. And as for those who may not know, uh, there's been a massive encroachment of, um, let's just say, neoliberal reconstruction um, in the universities. And basically, we have a situation where we have a lot of contract instructors here, which is a tenuous teaching position. Um, I think the only exception I'd take in this point with Burroway is um, how central he put the idea of the classroom being the political space. And then we send the sociologists out, young sociologists out into the world as ambassadors. Right. And I think... That's a good thing. Like, that's the only way our disciplines are going to be valid in the future. But um, we also, we should probably make that like a secondary concern. I would rather mm-hmm. have my students, knowing that my students went out there with a critical lens and maybe some knowledge of anthropology and sociology that they can apply right. to their yeah. everyday lives. Yeah, yeah. So 
And I think it kind of brings us into his third thesis, which, um, you know, I think increasingly Burroughs' divisions become kind of artificial. Yeah. Uh, You know, I think we've we've started to point uh, towards that a little bit. Yeah, it was probably my major issue with this article, but also I know that sometimes you need divisions. Honestly, man, sometimes you need divisions for clarity's sake. Because I know it was definitely a lot easier making these notes up because there are these handy little categories. So uh, we're into thesis number three, the division of sociological labor. Right. So, I, you know, I think um, there's several ways that you can practice um, scholarship and research. Uh, Burway offers us the professional, the critical, the policy or the applied and public. And what Burway says is public sociology is part of a broader division of sociological labor that also includes policy sociology, professional sociology, and critical sociology. So I think the distinction, so this is me, I think the distinction comes from the output, but maybe uh, also with regards to the targets and approaches to the research. But I also think that it's important to think about where researchers land. So, you know, where um, where they're working. So either universities, NGOs, think tanks, governments, etc. And I guess the analysis today, uh, you know, thinking back would be something like, does the social science, uh, where does social science knowledge come from? Uh, who is it serving? Who's creating it? And kind of who's, uh, I'm going to use the word peddling it, but whose name gets kind of stamped on it. And I think, yeah, there, that is a good ad there. Um, I was thinking uh, where our research lands and how it is received and digested is a key thing. And in anthropology, a lot of our engaged research gets into the politics and the politics are usually around how our work is produced and how our work is received. Um, but I have a quote here um, that can, might be a good way to kick us off. Um, it's uh, Burroway distinguishing public sociology from policy sociology. So policy sociology is sociology in the service of a goal defined by a client. Policy sociology's reason d'etre is to provide solutions to problems that are presented to us or to legitimate solutions that have already been reached. And I really think it's in- interesting that Burroway positions where the work is coming from and where the initiatives are coming from as not originating in academia, but originating out in the public. Yeah. You know, I think we could probably continue to critically analyze some of uh, those divisions, uh, what he kind of says is critical sociology, what he kind of thinks is professional sociology. Main chunk of the critique needs to kind of head towards how is knowledge produced, disseminated, and consumed. Yeah, and I that's why I like his... Um, the role of critical sociology that he puts out there. I happened to take a graduate level class in critical criminology, um, and it was a fascinating course. So um, this is his quote. My fourth type of sociology is critical sociology. It's to examine the foundations, both the explicit and implicit, both normative and descriptive, of the research programs of professional sociology. So right there he's saying critical sociology is casting the lens back onto the discipline itself. So if we're going to question where knowledge is produced and how it is disseminated, then we need to start critically examining our own discipline and and question how our knowledge is produced in the first place. Yeah, and um, <coughs> you you had talked to me about this before, Matt, but um, Caroline Roos um, kind of talks about that in a very pointed way. I think she talks about anthropology, but I, th- I think it's a pertinent to, to what we're talking about now. Yeah, so much um, public anthropology and public interest anthropology takes place in uh, developing nations. Um, so the politics there in terms of developing projects, aid, um, funding, they all get cast in pretty stark light pretty quickly. 
Um, so Caroline Roos offers a critique of what can happen if we aren't careful in this process. Anthropologists employed or contracted to work with government agencies and NGOs in former colonies became a focus of much of that disciplinary introspection. So this is within anthropology itself. In particular, applied anthropologists who believed that they were using their expertise to solve social problems were criticized for being unaware of their involvement in sustaining neo-colonial relations. Many became convinced that while genuine collaboration with interlocutors on an equal footing was critical, the legacies of colonialism made such collaborations next to impossible. So it's the legacy of colonialism that um, makes it so that a, a white academic from a Western university coming in with an aid plan just reminds those people of their colonial past, basically. Yeah, yeah. So they're rightfully very suspicious. And, you know, this is kind of a story that we've seen throughout the social sciences. Um, and, it, you know, we can think back to sociologists, in particular, but also anthropologists, um, that kind of contributed to the development of, quote-unquote, the welfare state. And really what I'm talking about here is like uh, folks who have developed advanced uh, calculative methods of quantifying people, for example, uh, the development of the census or statistics that served as a way to govern and control populations. So, the, you know, the example at one time is that a critical sociology. So, you know, how can we rethink the categories of people, be reflexive about how we think about groups, gets... Uh, taken up so that progressive set of research agendas can be turned around and used to support suppressive programs such as social control. So the point being that uh, the division between the types that Burroway offers us cannot exist at the level of output of the work. And that's kind of uh, how Burroway is typologizing it. Um, because I think that these are always subject to become politicized and reused in ways that are not originally intended. So if you focus on the outputs of the research uh, and not the impact or the effect that it has, uh, you're likely to not have a typology that fully encompasses what's actually happening with the research on the ground. Yeah, that's, um, well, those are some good points there, Phil. Um, so uh, Ruth goes on and um, kind of summarizes her main main points in a really snippy little way, and it kind of gets exactly what you're talking here. Um, so again, this is in a, the neo-colonial context. Um, one, collaborative projects tend to originate and are located in the West. Um, and they uh, cite a uh, 2008 ethnography about reversing the anthro gaze. Uh, two, what constitutes engagement is defined by Westerners working with lay people in the third world rather than the many academics working in the regions. And that's really key. Mm, yeah. After the fall of the colonial powers, all of a sudden, for surprise, surprise, whatever reason, everyone's kind of more able to go to university. So you actually have academics from these places. Yeah. So they don't this idea that we're giving them our specialized knowledge is no longer valid, yep, yep. especially with the internet as well, of course. And point number three, the effect of these asymmetries is the reassertion of the U.S. and Europe's monopoly on disciplinary expertise. So that's that point right there. Yep. And her key point, I think, what she thinks is the the thrust of all of this uh, public work and reexamining our discipline and how we go about it, it's to redirect what is meant by engaged anthropology to include the development of mutual awareness and the potential for collaborations between Euro-American anthropologists and those employed outside of Euro-American academic centers. So not just academics from these places, but also policymakers and um, maybe even politicians and people who are out in society so that your work can actually have wider impact. Yeah. And I think that ties us nicely into Burroway's fourth and fifth thesis that I think can be summarized somewhere along the lines of uh, knowledge for whom 
and knowledge for what are kind of the questions that are positioned at the backbone to understanding the different types of social science practice. So again, here I think Burroway artificially gives us the typology, maybe artificially, I don't know, um, but you know, a typology of ways of doing social science work. And I do have to say here that Burroway is very critical of disciplines outside sociology, almost seeing them as already corrupt and uh, unable to achieve the level of public awareness and pursuit that sociology can have. So economics, for example, uh, he's of the opinion that all economists are kind of the neoliberal mm-hmm. kind of like way shady. of... Shady. Very shady. <laughs> yeah. uh, but even the natural sciences, he deems, he seems to dismiss them mm. uh, as uh, not being able to encompass reflexive knowledge. Right. Um, so they're only able to, you know, build stuff. Yeah, they're too detached or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think uh, this kind of can lead us into questions of interdisciplinarity and cross-disciplinarity uh, that, I, that exists today that I don't think Burroway accounted for. And, you know, interdisciplinary work has been going on for a long time. So I don't want to say that it's a question of time, because I think in 2004, we had the mergers of social science, humanities, and hard sciences, or other forms of knowledge production. Uh, so I think he just kind of glosses over it or doesn't, doesn't put enough emphasis on its potential. His fourth thesis is uh, talking about the internal complexity of social science. Um, And he kind of says, well, let's look at the professional, the policy, the critical and the public ways of doing it. Um, But then he follows it up, which I think is the more salient point uh, in his fifth thesis by locating the sociologist within these things. So he says, okay, so these four kind of um, types or forms of practicing exist. They're out there. Uh, But what matters is to kind of look at where the sociologist is. So what he says is, Um, A distinction must be made between sociology and its internal divisions on the one side and sociologists and their trajectories on the other. So the life of the sociologist is propelled by the mismatch of her or his sociological habitus and the structure of the disciplinary field as a whole. Okay, so that last line, I have a little uh, notation. The life of the sociologist is propelled by the mismatch of her or his sociological habitus and the structure of the disciplinary field as a whole. So... Can we explore that a bit more? Because I don't really get that, like the mismatch of like your own biases, let's say, and and the field, or maybe a mismatch of your own personal politics and the politics of your field is maybe what he's getting at. Like, can you explore it and elaborate for us a bit? Yeah. So I think what he's saying is you as a researcher, as a practitioner in the field, um, you're brought up certain disciplinary techniques. You're brought up to replicate certain disciplinary practices. And if you cannot find what your political values or what your personal practices are within those kind of four broad categories, professional policy, critical or public, then that habitus of being a practitioner gets really confusing for you. And, um, you know, in a second, I want to talk about um, the role of biographies in independent uh, researchers' lives. But... I think what he's getting at with his fifth thesis is that we really have to pay attention to where people situate themselves Mm. in this typology or in the ways that we can practice, engage research. Okay, cool. Um, So I found a essay from an individual named Charles Tittle, and he's quite, um, quite critical of this, uh, this presidential address. Um, I have a nice little, you know, I think before we get into Tittle for a second, I think the holier than thou aspect uh, that's found in Burroway 
like we can kind of poke fun at that a little bit. Right? That's exactly what I'm about to pick okay. up on. Okay, good. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Good. I just got like, I just wrote down in big purple letters morality. So here we go. Okay, good. <laughs> so this is what Tittle has to say about Barraway. Um, this is a huge disclaimer, actually, because he's about to be critical about this moralistic stance that Burroway takes. And it's a very particular type of morality that Burroway is putting forth here. So he's actually critical about this, like, regimented morality. So this is uh, Tittle's disclaimer. I believe in the power of morality. I believe that moral questions are and ought to be at the center of human life, and that moral education is highly desirable. I take a backseat to no one in concerns of human suffering or the state of contemporary societies. Moreover, I believe that sociology and other social sciences hold the promise of providing information and insights that ultimately can be used to manipulate social conditions. My complaint with public sociology does not stem from lack of feeling or from lack of concern about the human condition. Rather, it flows from what I regard as defects in the notion itself. Mm. So, So he's about to dismantle public sociology, but he wants to make sure that people know that he's dismantling it as an academic, not as like a heartless, like amoral kind of individual. Yeah. And I think that just like, that is important. I think we can say, um, I don't wish to engage in this form of public research that is being put forward by Burroway. However, I sympathize and I am on that side of the politics and the kind of moral stance that yeah. uh, Burroway brings to the table. Yeah, for sure. And there's, um, so as an anthropologist, I would say that it, um, morality is culturally specific and every culture has a different set of morals. But I also actually, as like a human being, believe that there is a wider, like almost universalistic set of morality that we should know, like, you know, don't do harm to another person. Right. I mean, that's pretty damn universal, right? So I'm going to return to Peggy Reeves Sandy. The uh, uh, This was all, all these quotes are coming from an SAR workshop in Chicago that she attended and presented at in 2003. So she starts her whole essay with a quote from Roy Rappaport, who's a quite famous anthropologist, Um, quote, given humanity's power to disrupt as well as construct, the domination of ecosystems itself destabilizes. Its responsibility can no longer be to itself alone, but must be to the world as a whole. If evolution, human and otherwise, is to continue, humanity must think not merely about the world, but on behalf of the world, of which it is a very special part and to which, therefore, it has an enormous responsibility. If this is true in some general sense for humanity as a whole, it is particularly compelling for those like anthropologists whose profession it is to think about such matters. Now, I actually disagree almost like to the core with uh, Rappaport's quote there. Like, I don't think humans are the stewards of the globe and that certain humans should be the stewards for other groups of humans who can't right. steward themselves, let's say, to continue that terrible analogy. But it's kind of interesting that, like, right off the bat, that's what she starts with. And then the rest of her essay is, like, quite compelling. Right, yeah. So I just want to continue with a quote from her yeah, and then yeah, I'll yeah, yeah. toss it over to you. Um, so uh, Reeve Sandy goes on to say, Are we to work on behalf of an abstractly conceived humanity engaged in social processes about which we theorize? Or do we, address, do we address identifiable social problems on behalf of specific populations in order to suggest and implement solutions? Traditionally, academic anthropology engaged largely in the former activity, applied and practicing anthropology, mostly in the latter. Today, the lines separating the two are diminishing as anthropologists of all stripes 
take on a variety of critical social issues in the interest of promoting macro social goals of equality, peace, human rights, health, and social well-being. One of the critiques of anthropology, this is me, one of the critiques of anthropology is that we focus far too heavily on the particular and the micro. And what she's saying right here is that no longer is there a disciplinary um, division where only the applied and the practicing anthropologists look at these macro social issues. You're starting to see that uh, division um, falling falling apart. So on the one hand, we have Burroway saying that we need to know where what our uh, disciplinary habitus is. And on the other hand, um, Reeve Sandy is saying that disciplinary boundaries are dissolving. So what are we to do? How do we reconcile this, I guess, if the disciplinary boundaries are dissolving all around us? And how do we locate ourselves within our discipline's habitus? Yeah. And I think um, this is something that Burway come, comes at a little bit more for the American uh, sociological tradition. Okay. Uh, so coming at it from a Canadian sociological tradition, I think we can embed in Burway's analysis of the different forms and types and where researchers stand in relation to them with biography. And uh, particularly the way in which biography was um, explored by Max Weber or Philip Abrams or C. Wright Mills, even for that matter. And, you know, um, Burroway's a big fan of C. Wright Mills, but he doesn't, I don't think he injects what Mills had to offer about biography into his typologizing of it. Hmm. Um, so really what uh, is important here is uh, to see biographies as stories that structure social consciousness and social action. So biographies have an important place in the social sciences and humanities, and we can think of the current day examples of marginalized group members purposefully aligning their research practice to their identity and seeking out disciplinary opportunities to do so. So courses, departments, different schools, etc. So what we're witnessing is a real life set of practices where reflexive responses to the discipline are combined with a focus on one's biographic history and identity. And I'm sure there are other examples. But this is where you can get um, someone who says, I want to be critical, but I don't want to do it like the other critical sociologists. I want to do it in a way that is informed by my biographic history. And there at that crossroads, you get a new form of disciplinary practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Burroway didn't account for yeah. in his kind of typologizing. Yeah, you said it way better than I would have been able to say it, Phil, but I 100% agree with you. Um, so in anthropology, we have a deep history of reflexivity, both as a methodological practice, but then also in this more critical um, vein of being um, reflexive and critical about our own discipline and the work that's been done in the past. So again, Reeve Sandy from 2003, um, talking about uh, public interest anthropology here. Um, so she's trying to draw a deep history. Public interest anthropology's commitment to action is part of anthropology's legacy from Boaz to the present. Del Himes in 1969 lists the foundational disposition motivating anthropology's early engagement. Quote, responsiveness, critical awareness, ethical concern, human relevance, and making a clear connection between what is to be done and the interests of mankind. George Stocking, who I actually love, uh, speaks of the activist impulse when he compares taxes, activist anthropology to Franz Boas's anthropologies as culture kampf. And E.B. Taylor's reformer science of ethnology. So all of this comes in ahead. And you can see with um, George Stocking there, he's comparing a more modern ethnography and juxtapositioning it against um, Franz Boas and seeing this was Franz Boas actually an activist as well. So it's interesting that in anthropology, I feel like we have had a long commitment to revisiting old works and, 
and uh, questioning it with a new, more modern lens every decade that passes. Yeah, and I think part of that work of being reflexive uh, towards the discipline is thinking, where does that knowledge come from, right? So what we kind of assessed Burroway's first kind of points his theses on, where does it come from, who's producing it, get, I think we can take it a bit further than where Burroway left it. So he kind of left it at the level of, uh, you know, how do we typologize uh, these sorts of disciplines? But if we extend it a bit more, then what we can do is we can actually create a reflexive practice that is uh, beyond uh, the typologizing of the field. So regardless if you're doing public, critical, professional, or policy-related practice, you can have a reflexive practice in there. Yeah. And it's interesting, reflexive and reflexivity is an act of reflection. And um, I think that's something that every social scientist needs to carry into their practice and should, um, maybe some scientists as well. Uh, because in the early history, this is completely a side note, but in the early history of science, a lot of it was just discoveries and people were like taking a bath and just thought about, oh, that's what chlorine is, you know? So um, I think science would do with a, a healthy dose of reflection. And that's um, one of the things that Tittle is um, critical of Barroway about is that he kind of valorizes a certain type of science, right? And I think in valorizing a certain type of science, this leads us nicely into Burroway's next set of arguments about the normative model of sociology or social sciences, or what we could actually read is uh, how to actually practice sociology and social science. Uh, and I think it can be distilled down uh, to something like, if one type of practice seeks to bill itself as superior to others, the cohabitation of the different forms can collapse. So coming back to his typology, uh, if the four kind of ways of doing sociology or social science cannot cohabitate together, it threatens um, the whole, right? So if critical cannot uh, operate with professional or policy or public, yeah. or public uh, then it doesn't work. So, you know, I think there's a lot of castle guarding that happens in these sorts of practices. So one kind of example, um, anecdotally, that I can kind of give uh, is uh, at the 4S conference. So the Society for the Studies of Social Science, it's a broad and inclusive contingent of people, uh, but it's actually hard to locate folks who conduct similar research. Uh, so then this kind of has the effect that you're alone uh, in a sea of practitioners all doing different things, and they all kind of use different or vastly different approaches. So the multiplicity of publics being served is too great to get any sense of group cohesiveness, and the ways in which people practice is too different. So on the one hand, I, I, I think we can advocate for multiplicity of forms of practice. But on the flip side to it, if you need cohesion, which Burroway's kind of point is that uh, it can become pathological if there's too many different forms of doing it, uh, I kind of agree with. Um, the thing that I don't particularly think Burroway is correct on when he says that is Burroway draws these very kind of rigid lines between types of knowledge, types of practice, and types of output. So instrumental knowledge for Burroway uh, leads to professional practice. That means that it has a very particular set of methodologies and targets for research, and that the output of it is policy. Reflexive knowledge uh, leads to critical engagement. Again, different sets of methodologies and targets, and that leads to a public sociology. So right away, he's kind of favoring that line. 
Um, but I think the lines are maybe too dogmatic. Could we not envision a reflexive stance that is policy-oriented? Or could we not think about critical policy work that can be done, for example, working from or within a policy shop like government or NGOs, uh, that advances a critical stance, but yet mobilizes a reflexive as well as instrumental set of knowledges. So they want to actually do things, right? So I think the lines can be a little bit too don- dogmatic uh, that Burroughs is actually giving us, too rigid, too traditional in that sense, right? He's really trying to pick up on like the functionalist typology of the field. And I think um, while there are many social science and humanities ways that practitioners divide the field, that sometimes the sea can be a bit overwhelming, that there's uh, just way too many. It's hard to find common ground. Um, and I think, I, I know I'm kind of cutting you off, Matt, to this, but I want to kind of combine that thesis with two other ones. So it's kind of a, a big one that I'm going to do yeah, here. For sure. Go for it, so I'm going to combine his sixth, seventh, and eighth thesis. So yeah. the seventh and eighth uh, thesis that he kind of gives us can be combined to form kind of an assessment of the, the discipline of sociology as a, as a bigger whole. But we can also extend it to the social sciences. Uh, and it has to concern with how it's practiced in relation to power. Because really when we're talking about Castle Garden, we're talking about uh, you know, flag polling and all this kind of stuff, it's about power. So power being a central concern for certain types or certain programs of sociological study, not all of them. Sorry, is sorry, just I got to stop you. Is Castle Guardian like a like a turf war, like defending your ground or whatever? Yeah, it's a chess like, move. Okay, yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, like um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Burroughs' sure. seventh thesis is that the discipline is a field of power, uh, and he says that in reality, disciplines are fields of power in which uh, interdependence between actors becomes asymmetrical and an- antagonistic. So the result, at least in the United States, is a form of domination in which instrumental knowledge prevails over reflexive knowledge, which we can see. We can see all the time. People want widgets. They want stuff to be applicable right away. They don't, they don't want to engage in the reflexive sort of long processes that a reflexive sort of knowledge would create, right? And his eighth thesis is that in the United States, the domination of professional sociology emerged through successive dialogues with public policy and critical sociologies. But even here, so in the United States, the strength of professional sociology is concentrated in the research departments at the top of a highly stratified system of university education, while at the subaltern level, so that counter-public level, public sociology is often more important, if less visible. So it's cool. Like, this brings us back to Tittle. He has a great quote about the legitimacy of sociology, Um, And I'll just quote it. He actually directly relates it to thesis number seven. So, quote, in addition to its questionable assumptions, public sociology is a bad idea because it endangers what little legitimacy sociology currently has, which is precious little. When we do public sociology, especially when we collectively do it by acting as an association, we shift our collective status from generators of knowledge to advocates of one thing or the other. And continuing on this quote. Uh, we, in turn, continually undermine the little respect we might otherwise have by trying to promote our ideas, a form of ide- ideology, he has in quotes, in the guise of superior knowledge. Most of the time, we actually do not know as much as we pretend. And even when there is a chance we might ha- might provide or compile useful information, people do not trust us. So he's just really pissed off at this, right? He's pretty pissed off, yeah. And um, I don't know, I think... Uh, it seems like Tittle is somebody who's been around for a little bit, and uh, he's having a bit of a retrospect on his own discipline. And as Burroway here, the president of the association, is commenting on the history of the discipline, Tittle is like, hey, I'm going to comment on it as well. Yeah. Now, you know, I think we can respect Tittle's 
engagement with public sociology, even though he's kind of saying, well, before we all get on our white horses and uh, bandwagon. With, the, with the bandwagon yeah. and the cavalry and that kind of stuff, trumpeting certain political agendas and certain viewpoints, let's just think critically about it for a second. Is this ideological work that we're doing or is it social science? And I think that that can be uh, a critique uh, of public sociology, public engagement of research. Yeah, and it's um, he's probably cautious of the idea that we just slap public on something and just say it's from oh out there outside of academia, and then we can all just rest easy and not have these tough political conversations and uh, disciplinary conversations as well. Like, what the hell are we actually doing here? Yeah, who and are I, we doing it for as well? Yeah, and I think that point. So, who are we doing it for? What are we doing? Um, clearly, there's the risk of creating something like an us them dichotomy, and that can be from the right or from the left, right? And I think it's something that Edward Said has argued has plagued Western philosophical practices and disciplinary research programs. So again, we have the situation where the types of forms of social science practiced aren't necessarily aligned with what the particular practice is attempting to accomplish. Uh, so you have a critical practice that can actually counterintuitively create a them category that's out there uh, because they're focused on some sort of ideological political agenda. Yeah, so I love um, this idea of um, politically engaged research. Um, anthropology has always had a bit of a tricky situation with politics. We would happily write about um, internal social politics of the groups that we work with, but we were less um, willing to talk about, let's say, the colonial powers that is funding our yeah, research yeah. and giving us their travel grants to get yeah, there. Well, exactly. Yeah. And things like this. So, um, so even for anthropology... Um, discipline I love. We're starting to grapple with these politics questions in a more meaningful way now, not just playing lip service. So I have another article. Its last name is uh, Kirsch, so K-I-R-S-C-H. Um, and there's a quote about uh, politics and engaged anthropology. Um, the quote is, The discipline has historically been less comfortable with the integration of politics and ethnographic research. The following articles challenge that intransience in transience, there you go. Uh, they ask, what are the consequences for ethnography when it is conceptualized as a mode of political engagement? What would these new modes of engagement look like? How might they reshape the field of anthropology itself? So they go on to provide examples throughout this um, essay of people who actually use politics. But one of their main points is that when anthropology tries to do political ethnography, it's usually this critical ethnography where we are looking at our own discipline and challenging our own discipline, but we're actually not getting into the weeds of the politics either on the ground and the macro social sort of politics. Yeah, there's definitely a hesitance to engage in political debate or political discussion yeah. uh, when the word research or science is associated to it. Yeah, and uh, if you want to get an anthropologist stop talking really quick, ask them who funded their research. Right. Because yeah. that's usually where it comes down to. And um, honestly, some anthropologists are a little bit shady about uh, where their money is coming from because they argue that, well, the work is important, so it's sort of just the ends justify the means. Yeah. And I think um, extending this into uh, Burroway's uh, ninth thesis, which is uh, an assessment of the standpoints and partisanship, he calls partisanship, uh, I think we can put it in conversation with what we could call like political agendas. So Burroway's ninth thesis is if the standpoint of economics is the market and its expansion and the standpoint of political science is the state and the guarantee of political stability, then the standpoint of sociology is civil society and the defense of the social. 
In times of market tyranny and state despotism, sociology, and in particular its public face, so its public version of sociology, defends the interests of humanity. So it seems to me that Burroway is pushing for partisan politics within academia. So research agendas that clearly define targets and outcomes. So the debate then can be had at the level of academic integrity. What happens to the science when we are uh, defending the social? So I don't know what the social means, first of all. So how can we defend it? Uh, so kind it's of like the concept of publics and publics. Uh, we don't know what this means. Right. Either, right? So, so it, you know, it is a ta- like, is it a task for researchers or is it better suited for other forms of careers, politics, unions, NGOs, advocacy? So one example that I feel um, that the merger of the two could work, and it doesn't always, uh, is actually uh, found within the book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. And incidentally, it was published in 2004, the same year that Burroway kind of wrote this. And it's funded by Insight. So Insight is women, gender nonconforming, and trans people of color against violence. They are a national activist organization of radical feminists of color advancing a movement to end violence against women of color and our communities through direct action, critical dialogue, and grassroots organizing. So here we have a merger between civil society, an organization that is advocating for change, and researchers who can provide data and analysis of trends to the trenches, so to speak. So rather than um, advancing a type or a form of research program that then artificially kind of needs to have a standpoint that's political, this book, uh, Revolution Will Not Be Funded, is a great example of how someone's standpoint out there in the community. So an actual public's standpoint uh, can be enhanced by a researcher instead of taken over by a researcher. And I think that's, again, what Saeed was kind of saying, is that Western researchers pick up the problems of um, the East, appropriate them, research them, and then slap the label of public research on it. So in this book, um, again, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, uh, 2004 by Insight, um, we have a, an example of how we can do what Burroway is advocating, but not so rigidly. Yeah, so um, the term that continuously popped in my head when I was doing the research for this was co-opting. And whether it's co-opting the knowledge of the local communities, their initiatives, taking the credit, this is what a lot of this public research and uh, engaged research um, gets criticized for. It just... Um, it just smacks of like neocolonialism, basically, right? Yeah. right? And yeah. we just keep coming back to this. So I just wanted to emphasize that point one more time that um, oftentimes we as researchers um, originating from Western universities, um, we bring our notions, our cultural bound notions of um, society, civil life, power, inequality, and we wrap them all up within these Western development aid packages and and our funding is all wrapped up in them. So like when all the funding and all the philosophical orientation of the research and the initiatives and the objectives and et cetera, et cetera, are all wrapped up in these Western notions, where are the people that we're supposed to be public and supposed to be engaging with? Yeah. They get lost in the mix, right? Once again, that's why we call it neocolonialism. Yeah. And I think, you know, if we want to look for examples <laughs> that combine this uh, reality of the social world and the reality of the academic world, two kind of things, two examples of how this has been done uh, to varying degrees of success, uh, photo voice uh, and some participatory action research. Uh, some. Yeah. Like I'll, uh, I'll put a very big caveat on that. Yeah. And I think those are kind of methods that have been deployed to attempt to account uh, for those, uh, th- those differences. 
Yeah, and uh, photo voice is something that comes up in medical anthropology a lot, um, whether it's used with uh, people who are not seen, quote-unquote, or heard from, quote-unquote, in society. Photo voice is a technique where you give them cameras or you give them video cameras to, so that they can provide you with their own ethnographic like reflections, so to speak, um, or accounts. Um, but even this uh, gets challenged because it's like, what um, selections are you publishing? How are you arranging them? So then you get into the nitty-gritty of the academics again. And again, this is supposed to be like public and engaged research, but we're getting into academic debates, which is really one of the things that stifled public and engaged research to begin with. You know, one of the things that you were saying uh, about photo voice uh, makes me think almost immediately uh, to social media. Uh, sure. Photo voice is kind of, I think, like... Uh, a researcher's equivalent of Facebook uh, in a certain way, right? Yeah, really stripped down Facebook. Uh, really stripped yeah. down Facebook. So I think uh, to finish off our discussion about assessing Burroway, because in 2004, I don't think social media had as much of an impact as it does today. No, it was like MySpace maybe. Yeah. Uh, so I think we can start to think through how social media is being used. Um, but Burroway, let's, let's be reminded, Burroway tells us that we need to cultivate a collaborative relation between sociology and journalism. For journalists are a public unto themselves, as well as standing between us and a multitude of other publics. So it's interesting that he says journalists there um, and that there needs to be a collaboration with journalism because we're the state of the journalism industry. But uh, you yeah. can kind of replace journalism with social media yeah. um, because that is now the, the way to connect with the publics. Um, so I found in doing uh, some research for this episode an amazing consulting firm that just kind of summarizes everything. And I, I snipped a couple of quotes from their actual website. Um, they're called uh, publicationresearch.com. Um, and they're, uh, they are interested in um, taking research of this kind, like public research, engaged research, politically-minded research, and um, making it more accessible and have a wider impact, essentially. Right? right yeah. So if you publish your article in some journal, they're going to make sure that people and policymakers get to see it kind of thing. Neat, yeah. So um, <laughs> it's a consulting firm that, quote, in short, nonprofit research all too often ends up being used by academics instead of policymakers and practitioners, if it is used at all, continuing on from the website. Experience shows that developing a high-quality, quali policy-relevant research agenda is only part of the answer. The other part is packaging research in a way that best meets the needs of your target audiences, internal and external. PAR, um, that's the, the acronym for their company, not participant action research, <laughs> confusingly enough, actually. And they probably did that so that they're easily to search, actually, yes. to think about it. Um, PAR helps you develop a needs assessment for your users, create a relevant, effective research strategy, and then think outside the box in presenting and disseminating your research. So there's a lot of this neoliberal, neoconservative uh, neo uh, language in there, corporate language, essentially. But I also, I picked this because on one hand, it's, it seems like, uh, you know, it's just a consulting firm. But on the other hand, it's like academics actually do need some help right, with this, yeah. right? So yeah. these sorts of firms are actually helpful. So I thought it'd be interesting to to dig into it a little bit. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, it continues on Burroway's uh, trajectory of saying that instrumental knowledge uh, is what is prioritized uh, in, within the university and in policy fields and policy fields and those sorts of things, right? So I think what they're kind of saying is you could take your uh, participatory action research, your engaged anthropology or sociology that you did outside uh, of uh, the academic field and then put it through their hopper 
uh, whatever process they have and make it into something that's instrumental for policy consumption, you know? So being able to repackage it, rebrand it, these sorts of things, these are all very, as you were saying, neoliberal kind of themes. Yeah. But at the same time, if it gets your message out there, it gets your research out there, helps the public that you're serving, Yeah. you know? And when we are, as academics, um, are putting out proposals for funding um, to various funding bodies, whether they're government or non-government based, private, um, we adopt certain sets of languages um, that are somewhat corporate, sort of somewhat neoliberal, yeah, but yeah. also a very specific set of jargon that is geared for yeah. for these reviewers. Um, so we actually should be pretty skilled at this code switching sort of uh, or language switching idea where we should be able to adapt um, shit. And in anthropology, one of the four fields is linguistics. So if we can't yeah. figure this out, yeah. just can, right? Yeah, the the idea of code switching I find fascinating. Yeah. Uh, we might have to do another episode on yeah, it. Yeah, I want to. But, That's but, where it popped in my head. But I do, I do want to just uh, talk a little bit about when academics switch code, so to speak, uh, onto social media. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there's a big difference between how we market our research as a finished product and then the social media forms of marketing that we've been seeing lately. And do you think that on social media, it often takes form of like researches, research in progress kind of marketing? Like, hey, I'm almost done this research or hey, get ready. Like almost like you're sending out trailers for a movie or something. Yeah, I think we do that. Uh, I think we kind of tease some people about an upcoming book, tease them about an article, yeah. Which tease is them about it's a talk. Promotion, right? That's fine. Yeah. I think that's maybe one of the better uses of social media. Okay in academic spheres. Uh, The sort of pathologic, to use Burroway's word, the pathological use of social media, I think, really starts when you start engaging uh, people around social media. Hmm. So saying things like, well, my publications will reach a a bigger audience because of social media, or I can engage uh, my public through social media, or I serve my social media public. Uh, through my research. Mm. So using, bringing social media into the fold of either your techniques, your tactics, your strategies, or your gaze of your research is maybe pathological a little bit. But is it only pathological because uh, they didn't have social media back in 2004? Because like, I mean, that's a razor thin line to to draw between like self-promotion and then um, like, I guess, self-aggrandizement or something like that, or like self-profiting or something. Like if you're going to a book uh, going to get a book deal or something, and you're like, "Hey, I got like how many thousand followers on whatever." Um, I mean, yeah, to but me, I, that's just promotion. Yeah, but I think it? that's okay. Yeah, I think that's promoting okay. your stuff is fine. What I'm oh, talking okay. about is a practice that's almost like, "Well, I'm going to gain access to my public through social media." Oh, right. Oh, so, so, so using social media pathologically, I got you. Now. Yeah. So I'm the idea, like, you know, I think one of the one of the one of the bad practices, yeah. uh, although there might be a way of doing it well, but from what I've seen, it's not done like well creeping. Uh, yeah exactly so you go and creep in certain communities right yeah. so oh well, what's going on on this reddit uh what's going on over here uh well i can come to and then and then you know the the the, the line after the research line after is i've come to a conclusion about this reddit community based on these reddit things i think the online presence and some of them do it well some of them don't but i think the online presence in and of itself is a community it's an online community but saying that that's a public i don't know i don't know Oh, really? I I wouldn't think that you're going to go there with it. No, I, I think it's definitely a public. I mean, I feel like I feel connected to my 
guild in that stupid little game that I recommended uh, an episode ago. Um, but like, and I, and I know I, I have, um, I know of people who have autism who find their publics and their social outlets online because it's just sort of kind of less socially demanding in that sense. Um, but I, I think like when I was doing my research, I found this uh, concuss- concussion group um, and I joined them on Facebook and I just joined as a concussion sufferer, but um, I would never think of using any of their passages without letting them know, of course. I mean, that goes without saying, but people out there who are listening to this would be surprised at how often that does come. You just like lift somebody's story from some forum somewhere. Oh, hell, they're never going to find out. It's like Nancy Shepherd Hughes in Ireland, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden they find out and your ass is held to the fire. Because that's a lot easier to do now as well with social media and the internet. You can really hold people account. Above and beyond that, a question of accountability. Um, and I think, you know, above and beyond the questions of representation of certain communities based on their online activity and online presence, which was the point that I was getting at, um, you know, I think we can ask questions about um, how and in what ways can social media research be peer-reviewed and what does that mean when we start to talk about public research and in particular social media outreach research or social media-based public engagement? Hmm. So do you think social media is hard to research is that what you're getting at like can social media research like research on social media be peer-reviewed yeah or, and i think it's just a set of qua- uh, set yeah, of yeah. questions right so like can a program of study that focuses on social media be peer-reviewed how does it get evaluated uh you know which public is it meant for mm. uh maybe it's geared more towards some publics rather than others uh how can you kind of ensure that the public that you're engaging with is an actual public yeah. Uh, and does it change our definition of what a public is? So I think, you know, I have a lot of questions around social media. I don't have a lot of answers. Yeah. And, and it seems something that's relatively new and something that is delicate or should be delicately dealt with. And it's it's like social media is very ethereal. Is that it? Like it's like ether, like it's like a vapor where people come yeah, and go yeah, in these yeah. groups. So like one of the hallmarks of like a public or a social group would be that there's a relatively coherent sort of set of practices and thoughts and membership as well. So if you have people coming in and out of these groups, um, like how can you study that with your conventional tools of sociology? And one of those conventional tools being the peer review as well. So if um, like, because it's like so fleeting and the information just gets backlogged in there and as a researcher, you don't have control over your social media or you have a less control over what data is kept and what data is like highlighted and shifted off to the side and things like this. So if we're talking about like methodological transparency, some of the things that they would come up with and peer review, they challenge you on, um, it's harder to do that um, on social media or about social media groups. Extending that point a bit, it also raises access to access, right? So who has access to the narratives that are found on there? which sort of narratives are found on certain types of social media. So we know from, um, from experience that there are some Reddit uh, or subreddits that uh, have dominant narratives and they have a group cohesiveness. They have a way of dividing group members. They have a way of accepting others, right? Um, is that something that is worth pursuing as a sociological enterprise? What does it mean to be on a subreddit? Maybe, I don't know. Um, but how do we gain access to it? Yeah. And who owns those narratives in the end, right? 
Yeah, for sure. And that's why ultimately I couldn't do anything with that Facebook group because not only is it dishonest, but it's also like, man, those don't belong to me. Those belong to that group right there. And anyone who chooses to be part of the group. Well, itself, it probably right? belongs to Facebook. No, oh, that's the other thing. That's what I was going to say, like access. And this gets back to access as well. So some um, social scientists, some academics will just like fire their papers up on like some website that they have that runs and maybe a few blog posts and that's about it. But um, in terms of not only just reaching in a wider audience through social media and the various types of social media, but then wondering like who is actually going to get seen and, and should I pay that extra seven ninety nine to boost my post or whatever on whatever social media account. So like p part that happens with social media is that the academic probably is um, shelling out money to promote their thing, to make it more accessible to the people. And that's the reason why we went on social media in the first place, blasting your papers out there. Right. So like if yeah. the idea on social media is to make your work more accessible, but then Facebook, Twitter, whatever, um, is charging you to like boost your posts and, and to get a wider presence and impact from them, then that's a little bit, um, I don't know, at the very least a neoliberal ideology coming into this, yeah. the social media world, right? Yeah. The, uh, the ownership of the product of research uh, can also be questioned in this way, right? Mm. So if you engage in critical or public um, social science research, you're coming at it from a philosophy that says that your research participants own the product of your research. It's their narratives of their stories. And the method of promotion is through an enterprise who claims that they own whatever oh. you post. So who has ownership of those stories once uh, you as a researcher make the decision to put it on some uh, forms of social media, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, legal slash ethical uh, kind of debate there. Yes, you could tell your participants uh, at the end, this will be put on Facebook uh, and here are the Facebook rules and it's not going to belong to either of us after, right? Yeah. Uh, but then the decision of what happens to it becomes out of the control of the researcher. And those are always things that it's an eth ethically kind of slippery slope. Yeah, for sure. And that's why my transcripts are not on the internet in any way. Like the actual full transcripts are just on a drive off of the internet. And we make... Um, stipulations for this when we're getting our ethical clearance at our universities yep. like yep. the re yep. research ethics boards um so there's also legal situations there um, not only are you going to violate your ethics but you can also get sued for something like this because this damn near borderline like contract that you're getting people to sign yep. right and informed consent yep. um so yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it's a major consideration is what happens to our work afterwards, because that's honestly what got anthropology into a lot of shit through the yeah. last hundred years is of like course, yeah. what people did with our yeah. work. Yeah. You know? um, so we've kind of come around almost full circle uh, because we're back to talking about different publics and serving different publics. And that's kind of where Burroway, where we entered the conversation with Burroway anyway. Yeah. Uh, so we've kind of assessed Burroway's 2004 claims. Uh, some of them have been on par, some of them have changed, some of them have been extenuated, or some of them, you know, are just as relevant. Uh, the social media angle is something new, I think. Uh, it would be really interesting to know what Burroway now thinks or what he would think about uh, public sociology, public anthropology, engaged research in the era of social media. And there's been some ink spilled on that. Um, but, you know, I think most of the stuff that he's talked about still holds. Yeah. Like by and large, the program of public or engaged research uh, is a viable program. 
And this is something that I honestly didn't know a whole lot about. I thought I would just come in and say, oh, anthropology's always been engaged, whatever. Um, and I also thought, even before recording this, I'd be a lot more critical of Barraway. But I'm actually not. And I think um, I think if he was able to revise these uh, comments, he would probably revise them in light of yeah, the fact yeah. that we have social media, like a good sociologist should, right? So sometimes you make claims, you go out on a limb, and yeah. then in, sure. in 10 years, you got to revise them, man. Sure. And you can't hold it against people, right? And, and uh, you know, a little bit the of... academic process. A little bit of context before he put these, the, these together. He did extensive uh, outreach and engagement, his own engagement, uh, with universities, uh, different faculties, different schools, different uh, subgroups of the American Anthropological Association, uh, American Sociological yeah, Association. Sure. Uh, so it was kind of interesting to see that he even embedded uh, a pseudo practice of engaged scholarship yeah. into the method that he did to write about it. And that, you know, still today it holds. So mm-hmm. had he not done that, I probably wouldn't have thought that this stuff holds. But, yeah. you know, it comes from people, so... Yeah, and this uh, the Kirsch uh, quote that I think I only mentioned just once, um, that is actually an ethnographic treatment of universities uh, and looking at funding practices. Yep. So um, that is, I think, the, the ringing um, takeaway that we should uh, remember is that uh, it's important for academic disciplines to not only get more public, more engaged, but also turn that critical lens on themselves. All right, we got to wrap it up. Matt, do you have any final concluding sentence? You know I don't. <laughs> if you have... <laughs> If you have questions, concerns, comments, or considerations, you can get into contact with us on our social media, on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. You can email us at semiintellectual at gmail.com. Our website, which also includes the archives to the show, is thesim.podbean.com. If you're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else, you catch your podcasts. We have a Facebook page that is www.facebook.com slash thesimpod. Thank you so much. We'll be back after a short break with some recommendations. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings. Uh, we are now at the recommendations part of the show. And uh, Matt, uh, kick us off. What do you got for us? Okay, thanks, Phil. Um, so I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, as many of you have over the last like week or so, with all the, the news and politics. Um, and uh, I think Phil and I have tried to avoid discussing it on the podcast ourselves. So in lieu of that, I have a couple of pods that I've been listening to that I think have done a really good job of analyzing the political happenings of the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, the first one is uh, by PRI, is Public Radio International, and it's called The World. And it's hosted by Marco Warman. And uh, he basically takes, uh, there's maybe four or five stories per episode, and they have an international context. But when he talks about America, it's actually quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then the second podcast is uh, by, uh, is called uh, Politically Reactive. And uh, W. Kamal Bell is one of the hosts, and I can't remember the second guy's name. Um, but it's easy to find. Uh, they do uh, a very good job of doing real deep dives, and um, and it's important, I think, at this time to hear of uh, from two people of color. You know? Yeah, of course, yeah. 
Um, so after you get through those heavy podcasts and you feel all depressed, I got a couple of beers to recommend for you. <laughs> Give us the beers, or maybe we can drink the beers while we listen to the podcast. Yeah, probably a little bit of both. A little bit of both. So um, one of our favorite beers um, is this uh, uh, from Unibrew, and uh, this particular line is called Ephemere, and that is their French or not French, sorry, their fruit beers. Um, two of our favorites around the Sanderson house is the raspberry variety and then the current variety. Oh, I love the raspberry one. And do keep this in mind with the ephemer beers from Unibrew. Um, they are unfiltered, so pour them into a glass and watch for the bottoms. Yeah, and uh, quite high in alcohol, some of them. Some of them, yeah. Uh, compared, to, compared to what Phil likes to drink, I like the I like the six percenters and the eight percenters. I know they have a Twapi Stowe, which is a like a dark ale, and I don't really like dark beers, but that one I love. And Melanie actually really likes the Twappy Stowe as well. Yeah, the uh, their green apple. Oh, I love it. Yeah, the uh, pear is really good too. Yeah, the pear. Yeah. Uh, so I have a couple podcasts. Uh, I want to start uh, with Ono Lit Class, uh, put on by Megan and RJ, uh, and they've actually sent us a promo. So oh, let's cool. listen to that. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. Did you know that the author of The Scarlet Letter had to shovel poop for a living? No. But do you know that the author of The Handmaid's Tale helped make long-distance sex toys? Who do you think she tested this on? Of course I knew about it. Fair enough. You know all these things and more. Like the difference between Moby Dick and Mocha Dick. If you listen to our show, Oh No Lit Class, a podcast where comedy meets literature and things get nerdy, weird, and maybe even a little bit sexy. It's all on Ono Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. Listen now at onolitclass.com. So thanks, Megan and RJ. Uh, Ono Lit Class, uh, I fell in love with it just because it's on literature. Uh, Some of the episodes that are gateways to the drug. Uh, Margaret Atwood, episode nine, hilarious, Hmm. Uh, although she's not dead. And episode 15, uh, Jane Austen uh, with a guest uh, just uh, just out. Oh, it is cool. great. Now, I do also want to say uh, speedy recovery to Megan. She broke her ankle oh, dear. Uh, recently in roller derby. Oh, wow. Oh, so roller derby. doesn't that's... that just show how cool they yeah, are? Yeah, that's pretty cool. I was just about to say. So, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, thanks very much, uh, Megan and RJ, for the, for the uh, shout out. The, oh, second, the second one, uh, a new uh, podcast on the Canadian scene called The Salty Canadian. Um Really interesting show concept. So rants, a little bit of commentary, but then snippets of other podcasts, reviews of other podcasts, uh, great interaction on social media as oh, well. Cool. So uh, The Salty Canadian awesome. and Ono Lit Class. Cool. Check them out. Uh, if you have comments, questions, concerns, or recommendations for us. Yeah, love to hear them. You can tweet at us at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website, including the archives to the show, is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on Google Play. We're on uh, Radio XFM or some shit like that, too, now. We're kind of oh, everywhere. Really? So, uh, yeah. That's like. You know, what you could do is just Google semi-intellectual musings and see what pops up and then use whatever service you want to. Yeah, for sure. And while you're doing that, um, make sure you rate and review. Please give us some ratings and reviews <laughs> and check out our Facebook page at The Simpod. And there's a little button there. Fancy Dancy. Click review five stars. If oh, yeah. nice. We'll have well, to do that. Well, there's other options, but five stars <laughs> is the preferred option. Awesome. It's been a really fun episode. Thank you very much, and uh, happy belated birthday to Cheryl. Yes. And uh, to happy my... Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. 
Happy and birthday <laughs> to you, Cheryl. Cheryl. Okay, let's just stop doing this now. All right, okay. And uh, my uh, buddy who's traveling in Afghanistan, travel safe, and we'll see you soon, bro. See you all next week. Super fralic, casualistic, XP snaladocious. Super fralic, casualistic, XP snaladocious.